The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in Memphis. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. 901 Shelby Drive, look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. and welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. So in today's show, we're going to be discussing the music and legacy of the Memphis Horns, the duo of trumpeter Wayne Jackson and saxophonist Andrew Love, who were absolutely instrumental in defining the Memphis soul sound of the 1960s and 70s before branching out and lending their signature horn sound to a veritable who's who of A-list musicians. Following that, we're going to head to the crate to dissect Otis Redding's 1965 masterpiece, Otis Blue, which was a career highlight both for Redding and the Memphis Horns. Before we begin, though, I did want to get a little news. I wanted to let you know that on Wednesday, June 26, we'll be announcing the names of the 2019 inductees into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, 3 p.m. at Lafayette's Music Room. Once again, the inductee announcement, 3 p.m. Lafayette's June 26th. It is an event that's open to the public, so uh, I'd love to see if you're able to come. It's always a good time. Alrighty, with that being said, let's jump right into the story of the Memphis Horns. So, in a biography of the Memphis Horns that I wrote for the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, I compared the two to the concept of yin and yang. Yes, I know, a bit hacky, but uh, I would also defend that characterization. So not only were Wayne Jackson and Andrew Love physically diametric, with Wayne being short, stout, and white, and Andrew being tall, slender, and black, their personalities and playing styles differed pretty greatly as well. So while Wayne was a ball of frantic, pent-up energy, Andrew was, by all accounts, much more reserved and suave. But much like Yin and Yang, these two men were able to blend their unique talents and personalities together in a way that created something much more dynamic and powerful than either individual half. So our story begins in November of 1942, although on two different sides of the mighty Mississippi River. So here on the Memphis side, Andrew Love was born to a family steeped in the church, while across the bridge in West Memphis, Arkansas, Wayne Jackson was born three days later to a middle-class family who ran a funeral home. Um, So while they both grew up on different sides of the bridge, both literally and metaphorically, The past remained almost eerily paralleled until the moment they forged into one. So both men were musically inclined from childhood. Andrew Love played saxophone in his father's gospel band, while Jackson uh, became infatuated with the horn of of choice, the trumpet, at the age of 11. So by the time they were both in high school, both young men had turned their hobbies into professional careers. 
So Wayne Jackson was an original member of the Marquees, whose members also included Steve Cropper, the great guitarist for Booker T and the MGs, and Packy Axon, a tenor saxophonist whose mother and uncle were the founders of Stax. So Packy's familial connections allowed the Marquees to become the fledgling soul label's first house band, and their song Last Night became one of the label's earliest hits back in 1961. Let's take a quick listen. Wayne Jackson was helping to lay the foundation for what would become the stack sound. Andrew Love was sneaking out of his house to play alongside some of the finest players of the era, including Bo Legs Miller, Fred Ford, and Robert Talley. So these connections eventually led Andrew to join Willie Mitchell at his uh, label High Records, which was located just around the corner from Stax, and he quickly established himself as the influential band leader's favorite horn player. So in fact, it was while Love was playing with Mitchell's band that he first met his future partner. As Wayne Jackson would recall decades later, quote, The first time I heard Andrew was at the Manhattan Club in Memphis with the Willie Mitchell band. I knew we would be perfect together. He had a big tone, and I had a big tone. I knew that they would blend in the most natural, beautiful way. Fortunately for all of us, the two would have the opportunity to join forces just a couple of years later, when MG's drummer Al Jackson Jr. recommended that Love come and join the Stax family. So by this point in time, the horn section at Stax had really proven to be a critical piece of the studio's unique sound and had kind of taken over the role traditionally held by backup singers. So there was always a need for more and better horn players. According to Wayne Jackson, Andrew Love was a natural fit at Stax. Quote, The saxophone is closest to the human voice, and Andrew Love's sound was as human and warm as he is. Solid and wide set like his shoulders and deep and soulful like his eyes. His sound could coax a bluebird down from the sky. The very first time we played together, we knew something special was going on. We smiled a lot. So back then, the term the Memphis Horns was applied more loosely and kind of referred to the larger collection of horn players who played at both Stacks and High and included other players such as Bowlegs Miller, Floyd Newman, Joe Arnold, James Mitchell, Ben Colley, and a few others. But it was clear even back then that Jackson and Love shared a special bond. So the symbiosis between the two was one of Stax's secret weapons, you could say, uh, especially during the label's 1960s heyday. And the two played on some of the most iconic songs of the era. So here's a quick list. They were on Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood. Sam and Dave's Soul Man. And Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour. But one artist in particular proved to be the most influential on the group. A lot of spontaneity stacks, and, and Otis Redding was a natural horn player. He was a natural horn arranger. Man, we learned about playing horns from Otis Redding a lot. From and him. since he was the singer, he couldn't sing the song and sing the horn line at the same time, so he never stepped on himself. That's right. He'd be singing it. He'd say, 
can't turn you loose. He'd look at us and go, da 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 da. And all that, da 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 da, all that stuff, da 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 da. He was great. We learned a lot from him. We learned to stay off the singer from him. You could feel the energy. He was fiery. He would be singing bass lines, horn lines. And you hit here on the drum, he would just be <laughs> frantic sometimes. Some people have said, Oops. is it time for a drink? <laughs> <laughs> Some people have said that Otis, it seemed as though Otis knew he didn't have a lot of time in his life and he wanted to get everything in. That's right. And it seemed like he had been laying awake all night thinking about the song he was going to sing the next day and every part of it. So when he walked in the studio, he had the record laid out in his mind, all of it. So during Otis Redding's roughly six years at Stax, the Memphis Horns were key collaborators and friends with the iconic singer and accompanied him on virtually every one of his hit songs, from Satisfaction to Respect to The Dock of the Bay to Try a Little Tenderness, which that latter song being in the running for having the most beloved horn introduction in the history of pop music, at least on my list. But according to Wayne Jackson, his favorite Redding cut of all of them was I've Been Loving You Too Long. Quote, we were standing out in the middle of the floor with Otis, and he sang the horn lines to us. Then we added the sustained notes and the modulation notes ourselves. I remember all of us thinking that it was one of his best songs, but it was just another normal day in the studio with Otis. A lot of excitement because he was such an inflammable singer. He just caught everything on fire when he sang. It is one of my favorite songs of the Stax era. End quote. So before we move on, let's take a quick listen to Otis Redding and the Memphis Horns with I've Been Loving You Too Long. I've been... Loving you too long to stop now. You were tired and you want to be free. My love is going to. As you become a habit to me. So as the Memphis Horns were helping to make Stax a powerhouse of Southern soul music, began to gain a national reputation that eventually led them to some of the region's other exceptional studios. So in addition to their work at Willie Mitchell's High Records, the Deuce Hut duo were also called down to Alabama, where a new studio in Muscle Shoals was beginning to make some noise. So originally, the group worked with Wilson Pickett, whom they knew back from the Stax days, but they were also added to sessions with up-and-comers who would soon be household names. Quote, One day, we worked on a Wilson Pickett session at Rick's, which is Muscle Shoals, and then Marlon Green called from his little studio over in Florence and asked if we could come by there on our way out to do a quick session for his new artist. Somebody called Percy Sledge that no one had ever heard of, and we agreed to do it. We recorded a little ditty Percy said he'd been singing in the cotton patch with his family while picking cotton. We wound up with When a Man Loves a Woman. It's never been off the radio since the day it came out. Alrighty, let's take a quick listen to that classic track. This is Percy Sledge with the Memphis Horns, When a Man Loves a Woman. Down. 
So the duo's unbelievable hot streak eventually caught the eye, or perhaps ear, of Atlantic Records legend Jerry Wexler, who began calling up the duo and exclaiming, I need some of them Memphis horns, baby. According to Andrew Love, this was when the duo decided to incorporate the name Memphis Horns for themselves. It was also around the time when the Memphis Horns approached Stax about ending their exclusivity agreement, freeing them up uh, more to play with whomever and wherever they chose. As Wayne Jackson said, we needed to be making money every day with those horns. So the relationship with Wexler and Atlantic Records proved to be a major stepping stone for the group allowing them to collect larger paychecks, play with some of the era's biggest stars, and get a taste of the high life that wasn't readily available in Memphis. So in his biography, Wayne Jackson writes, quote, It was like a fantasy. Big-time musicians like King Curtis were everywhere, and they would take us to Harlem. Somebody would have dope, and even though I didn't smoke, I'd have to take a big hit off of somebody's joint. Then I would be like Alice in Wonderland, walking through Harlem with a bunch of black guys, going to jazz clubs and such. We were trapezing around like we belonged. So while they continued to work with Stax, commuting back and forth from Memphis to New York, they also got the opportunity to record on classic cuts from Atlantic artists such as the aforementioned King Curtis. They're featured on that classic track, Memphis Soul Stew, and also with Atlantic's biggest star, Aretha Franklin. Quote, we were on roll. We were on a roll with Aretha, and I knew we had hits just from the excitement in her voice. It was magic. With Aretha, it always was. All right, before we move on, let's take a listen to one of those classic tracks. This is Aretha Franklin with the Memphis Horns in the 1968 soul classic, Think. You Having already established themselves as important weapons for stacks, muscle shoals, and Atlantic, the Memphis Horns soon became deeply involved in the sound of yet another fabled studio, Memphis's own American Sound Studio. Now, if you aren't familiar with American Sound, I promise you're not alone, but as you'll soon see, it was truly one of the era's premier hit factories, despite its relative anonymity. So, American Sound was founded by former Stax employee Chips Moman and was located in North Memphis. So under Chips' uh, leadership, it quickly gained a reputation for excellence and drew talent from around the country. So in the brief span between its founding in 1964 and its shuttering in 1972, American Sound produced approximately 120 hit songs, many of which are considered classics to this day. And yes, the Memphis Horns were a part of many of them, especially during the late 1960s. So as Wayne Jackson recalled, quote, soon all the major labels sent their artists to American to record. Every kind of artist from B.J. Thomas to Paul Revere and the Raiders, Dionne Warwick to Neil Diamond. The excitement was constant and Andrew and I were constant too. 
So at the risk of stressing my producer out, I do want to run through just a few of those tracks recorded at American during this time frame. There was B.J. Thomas's Hooked on a Feeling. Neil Young's frat boy favorite, Sweet Caroline. Hands, touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. was Dusty Springfield's classic Son of a Preacher Man. And Dion Warwick's You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Perhaps most notably, though, were the songs recorded with Elvis Presley, who had returned to Memphis in 1969 in hopes of rekindling his stalling career. So it was the first time Elvis had recorded in Memphis since leaving Sun Records nearly 14 years earlier, and he arrived with a fresh hunger. Of the several songs they recorded, two were major standouts, In the Ghetto and Suspicious Minds. So Wayne Jackson wrote, quote, the world could have said, no, we don't like this. This ain't Elvis, but he took the chance. Chips also took a chance, and it turned out it changed the course of Elvis's life and career. We were sitting there listening to him sing those songs, and the electricity was, well, you could have hung clothes on the electricity that was coming through there. So yeah, it was great. All right, before we move on, let's take a quick listen to Suspicious Minds, the final number one single of Elvis's career. for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. Hey Memphis, if you're looking for a judgment-free shop to get your first or next tattoo, look no further than Ronin Tattoo at 2615 Broad Avenue. 
owner Babak has been in the business for decades, located in the heart of the Broad Avenue Arts District. His boutique shop, Ronin, is known for its relaxed atmosphere and talented, versatile group of artists. They also have an eclectic collection of comics and other toys for sale, and the background music runs the gamut from black metal to 80s hair. Ronin has developed a cult following over the past. Here are some of the things that people are saying about Ronin on Facebook, where Ronin has been recommended by almost 200 people and is five-star rated. A true professional, talented beyond belief. No better artist anywhere. They made getting my first tattoo a pleasurable experience. I've gone to three other local artists, but the ones from Ronin are my favorite. The tattoo gods smile upon Ronin. Make your appointment today. They're open Tuesday through Saturday from 4 p.m. to midnight. Limited walk-ins are available. Shop minimum is 60 bucks. Make your appointment today. Email Memphis at gmail.com or call 901-371-6923. Mention OAM and get 10% off your tattoo no matter the size. Hey, everybody. This is Josh Campbell. I am Dad. Hey, I'm Paul, and I'm I. And we are the hosts of the Dad and I podcast, the podcast that asks the question, can a dad be cool? No, and even asking that is pretty stupid. You guys can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, right here on the OAM Network. All right, so as the 1960s ended, the Memphis Horns continue their hot streak into the next decade, playing on such seminal Memphis recordings as Isaac Hayes' theme from Shaft and Peebles' I Can't Stand the Rain and virtually every song recorded during Al Green's unbelievable golden period during the 1970s. Meaning that in a very real way, they were just as important to the success of high records as they had been to stacks in the previous decade. They also somehow found the time to accompany the likes of Willie Nelson, James Taylor, the Doobie Brothers, Rod Stewart, and countless others, amassing more and more hit records to their already bloated resume. So in 1977, the duo even released their first album as a group called Get Up and Dance, which is a pretty lively collection of soul, funk, and disco tunes that included the minor hit Just For Your Love. So during the 80s and 90s, the Memphis Horns somehow continued to be in pretty high demand, which is an even more impressive feat considering the diminished role of brass in that particular uh, era of music. So they played extensively with the blues act, the Robert Cray Band, playing on five of the band's albums, and they also teamed up with everyone from blues greats like Buddy uh, Buddy Guy and B.B. King to pop icons like U2 and Billy Joel. Perhaps most notably during this time, though, they provided the iconic horn section to Peter Gabriel's 1986 number one hit Sledgehammer, which became one of the most popular music videos of the MTV era. Let's take a quick listen. Despite a nearly 50-year reign as the world's greatest horn section, including a track record of, check this out, they were on a staggering 52 number one songs, 116 top 10 records, 83 golden platinum albums, and 
15 of which of those won Grammy Awards. So despite that, the Memphis Horns remained virtually unknown to the greater public, but thankfully this was at least slightly remedied in 2012 when they were awarded with the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, making them only the second backing group in history to do so. So um, on Grammy.com, Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs wrote the duo's tribute page, and I wanted to quote a bit from that. Quote, if you've ever heard the brilliant unison horns that play the starting phrases on records such as Knock on Wood, Hold On, I'm Coming, or In the Midnight Hour, then you've experienced the excitement that the Memphis horns can stir when opening a song. The enthusiasm exhibited by these extraordinary session players appears on every recording take, every rehearsal, and every live show that they have been involved with. If you call the Memphis horns, you know what you're going to get. Solid horn lines and warm, flowing harmonies to accentuate the vocals or highlight the melody. And now the time has finally come for the recording industry to play a unison note in tribute to the men that defined what a horn section should be. So, only a few weeks after receiving the music industry's highest honor, saxophonist Andrew Love lost his long battle with Alzheimer's. In a remembrance of his lifelong partner and best friend, Wayne Jackson said, quote, It was like magic. His individual tone and mind blended in a certain way that was unique. We realized it from the start. You can't make that kind of stuff happen. It was fate. So in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, former Stax co-owner Al Bell remembered Andrew Love's legacy, saying, Stax Records would not have become what it became without them. I love saxophone players, and I have many saxophone players I admire and hold in high esteem. But I have never heard a saxophone player who affects and penetrates me like Andrew Love. It was the spirit in him, and you could feel it in the music. He could arouse your deepest emotions, but he would do it gently, softly. So, uh, sadly, Wayne Jackson followed his friend, the great beyond, in June of 2016, bringing an end to one of the most spectacular runs in music history. So, following Wayne's passing, Stax had, uh, Stax's head songwriter and musician David Porter told the commercial appeal, quote, there were ingredients at Stax that made it a magical place, and those ingredients encompassed, encompassed several individuals, black and white. Color was never a part of the great things that were done at Stax. The universal love we had for each other was way beyond any superfi superficial differences like that, and Wayne was a symbol of that. Not only was he a great horn player, he was a great person. He had so much love in him. Alrighty, with that, that'll largely end the story of the Memphis Horns today, but... uh. I know for a fact that those two will continue to emerge and plenty of the stories we'll tell in the future. Before we leave, though, I did want to give the last word to Wayne Jackson, who has admittedly had plenty of words so far. But uh, right, but not far long before his death, Wayne said, quote, Back then, we had to do those songs from front to back with no mistakes and with good feelings. That's what made musicians out of us. That's what trained us. Now musicians all around the world judge their performances against those records with us on them, and that's why we're heroes. End quote. Alrighty, with that, let's head over to the crate where we come from time to time to sift through some of Memphis's best, weirdest, or otherwise most notable albums. Oh, 
that, of course, was the one and only Otis Redding with Old Man Trouble, the opening track of his third album, Otis Blue, which was released in September of 1965. So over 50 years later, Otis Blue is not only widely considered to be Otis's best album, but truly one of the finest soul albums ever released. So before we get into the album that Pitchfork's Nate Patron called the 1960s greatest studio rec- recorded L- soul LP, in which Rolling Stone magazine ranked as the 78th best album of all time, let's take a second to examine where exactly Otis Redding was at this point in his career. So before the release of Otis Blue, Redding was a singer with a modest level of renown who was generally viewed, fairly or unfairly, as a Sam Cooke acolyte who had kind of yet to fully distinguish himself from his hero. So he had a couple of hits under his belt with I've Been Loving You Too Long and Mr. Pitiful, but was an otherwise fairly minor minor figure, uh, at least on the national scale. So that would all change with the release of Otis Blue. So according to Jonathan Gould's book, Otis Redding, An Unfinished Life, the album was recorded at an unbelievably breakneck pace. Quote, all 11 tracks were recorded during a two-day gap in Otis's tour schedule. In a single marathon session that began on Friday morning, broke off around 8 in the evening so that the members of the Stax Band could play their usual Friday night club dates, resumed at 2 in the morning, and continued well into the next day. This absurdly tight schedule ensured that little thought or preparation went into the selection of the material, and it left little time to refine the arrangements and performances during the recording process itself. End quote. So while cramming an entire album's worth of content into roughly 24 unplanned hours may seem like a recipe for disaster, the result was anything but. In fact, the freewheeling process meant that listeners got to hear Otis express that energy and passion that was you know, normally reserved for his live performances, including those signature grunts and shouts of his. So his backing band of Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes and the Memphis, For- Memphis Horns, were also in tip-top form, seemingly inspired by the intensity and joyfulness that Otis brought. So our friend Wayne Jackson recalled, you could feel the excitement just when he was coming in, while MG's bassist Duck Dunn said he got performances out of us like no one else. He was an incredible creative spark. So although the album included a few original tunes, including Old Man Trouble that we heard at the top, and the all-time classic Respect, the majority of the album was composed of cover songs. Despite this, made e- uh, Redding made each of them his own, particularly his amazing cover of Sam Cooke's anthemic, A Change Is Gonna Come. So Otis also tackled tracks for the likes of The Temptations, B.B. King, and even The Rolling Stones, which we'll get to in a minute, as well as two more Sam Cooke numbers. So Sam Cooke had died just a few months before the recording of Otis Blue, and several critics point out that Otis was likely inspired by the untimely death of his idol and 
probably also motivated to fill the large hole that Cook's passing had left within the black music scene. Either way, Otis proved that he was more than up to the task, and Otis Blue was the perfect coming out party for America's new king of soul. So when Otis Blue was released in 1965, it was met with universal praise, but I'd say relatively lackluster sales, at least here in the U.S., But across the pond in the UK, it rose to the top 10 and introduced Otis to a brand new audience. They would treat him like absolute royalty during his European tour a couple years later. So despite those somewhat tepid sales at home, the album would ultimately prove to be the launching pad Otis needed to be a superstar, especially as the album singles began getting wider and wider airplay. So his music journalist Nate Patron wrote, quote, Writing sounds at home, pouring his heart into each song and singing it the way you'd want a brand new fan to hear it. And all, and all those brand new fans came about because of an album that took one day to create. So another notable if minor thing about Otis Blue was the strange choice of album art. So for whatever reason, Atlantic Records chose a grainy blue-hued picture of a white woman to adorn the cover, which is a strange choice to be sure. So whether this was an attempt to hide writing's race, which seems like a losing battle, or to simply appeal to a white audience, I think is pretty much unknown, but the marketing ploy did allow the album to be more readily displayed by retailers who may have been less comfortable displaying an album featuring a black man on the cover. Either way, it just remains one of those strange remnants of the time. Anyway, before we move on, I do want to listen to one more standout from Otis Blue. That would be Redding's cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction. So although the song had been a hit for the Stones the previous year, Redding claimed that he had never heard the original before recording his cover, saying, quote, They asked me if I'd heard the new Rolling Stones songs, but I hadn't. If you notice, I use a lot of different words from the Stones version. That's because I made it up. So in his biography of Redding, author Jonathan Gould observes, quote, Historically, it had always been the province of white musicians to appropriate and oversimplify black musical styles in, pr- in pursuit of commercial gain. But here for a change, was a black artist soliciting the attention of white listeners by riding roughshod over one of the great pop songs of the day. Without further ado, here's Otis Redding with Satisfaction. Island mixtape, I'd like to take a moment to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their continued support of the show. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Memphis Musicology wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes if you would be so kind. That being said, let's hop on the random monorail to head over to Mud Island to add yet another song to the Mud Island mixtape. So a couple of weeks ago, Memphis lost a local legend with the passing of John Gary Williams, 
a Stax artist who was the lead vocalist with the doo-wop group The Mad Lads. So The Mad Lads was uh, formed at Booker T. Washington High School and scored a couple of hits in the mid-60s with I Want Someone and Don't Have to Shop Around, the latter of which I want to hear today. So his musician Scott Bomar said after Williams' passing, quote, The Mad Lads were a huge anomaly at Stax because they sounded like a northern soul group. They were huge in Philly and Chicago and are still huge on the West Coast, East LA lowrider scene. So considering that this track was recorded in the same year as Otis Blue, I think makes the contrast between the Mad Lads and the general uh, stack sound even more stark, but it's a great track nonetheless. Anyway, rest in peace, Mr. Williams. Thanks for the tunes. And here's the Mad Lads with their 1965 track, Don't Have to Shop Around. Catch y'all next time. I found a love that my heart has been longing for. I don't have to shop around. Memphis Musicology is a joint production of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum and the OAM Network. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the OAMnetwork.com. Hosted by Ezra Wheeler. Produced by Gil Worth. Logo and designed by the OAM Network. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.